products and practices of the alcohol industry cause massive harm. But most people remain unaware of the extent and the severity of the alcohol burden. For instance, in the European Union in 2016, cancer was the most common cause of alcohol-related deaths at 29%. Alcohol causes seven types of cancer, and even low-dose alcohol consumption levels caused almost 23,000 new cancer cases in the European Union in 2017, and accounted for more than 13% of all alcohol-attributable cancers. Almost half of these, that is, Around 11,000 cancer cases were female breast cancers. More than a third of the cancer cases due to low-dose alcohol use resulted from a level of less than one standard alcoholic drink per day. However, despite decades of growing scientific evidence, the general public remains largely unaware about the fact that alcohol causes cancer. One reason why is because big alcohol aggressively blocks this knowledge from reaching the public. The alcohol industry uses various strategies to cast doubt about the science, but they do more than that. They interfere against public health policy making that aims at protecting people and communities from alcohol harm. And right now such a battle between corporate profit interests versus people's health is taking place in the European Parliament. Hello, from Movendi International, I am Mike Dünnbier. Warm welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast. This is the fourth episode of our second season. Thank you for tuning in. The Alcohol Issues podcast is an original production by Movendi International. It's a show about current alcohol issues of global importance. Through in-depth conversations with policymakers, community leaders and scientists, we explore alcohol policy issues, discuss landmark scientific studies and expose the alcohol industry. This episode is special because it's a conversation about an unfolding policymaking story. As such, this conversation chronicles a case study of alcohol industry interference against policy development in the interest of public health and protecting the people in Europe from the harms caused by the products and practices of the alcohol industry. There's no better guest to speak to about alcohol industry interference in the European Parliament than IOGT NTO that has a permanent presence in the center of EU policy making in Brussels. I'm excited to talk with Emil Yuslin and uh, Runa Neely of IOGT NTO's Brussels office. Emil Yuslin is the European policy officer at IOGT NTO and the head of the Brussels office. And Runa Neely is the European liaison officer at IOGT NTO. We recorded our conversation on Friday, February 11th, 2022. Alcohol causes seven types of cancer, mouth, throat, foot pipe, voice box, breast, bowel and liver cancer. For each of these cancers, the more alcohol a person consumes, the higher is the risk that they develop cancer. In the European Union in 2016, about 80,000 people died 
from cancer due to alcohol and about 1.9 million years of life were lost due to premature mortality or due to disability. Alcohol use is one of the main known risk factors for cancer in the EU and there is no safe or healthy amount of alcohol consumption. In a recent comprehensive study on risk factors for cancer in France, for example, only tobacco smoking was reported to cause higher cancer incidences than alcohol. A recent study showed that alcohol use, including low-dose alcohol consumption, continues to cause a considerable cancer burden in Europe. And now both the European Commission and the European Parliament are committed to advancing public health action, including on alcohol, to beat cancer in the EU. But the alcohol industry is interfering aggressively. So I talk with Emil and Runa about what is unfolding in the European Parliament. Emil and Runa explain the background and context of the political process in the European Parliament and the European Commission. And they share inside information about key issues the alcohol industry is pushing to undermine and derail an evidence-based approach to beating cancer in the European Union. We also talk about why the alcohol industry is so aggressively fighting against science and public health action. And Emil and Runa share insights about which alcohol industry actors are the most aggressive in this fight. This discussion is a case study of alcohol industry interference in real time. I hope you find it interesting and useful. Hello, Emil and Runa. I'm very thankful um, to have the opportunity to talk with you today. I think this conversation is really a case study in how the alcohol industry operates to undermine the European Union's work to actually prevent and reduce cancer cases and cancer deaths uh, in, in the EU, so to say. So very welcome and thank you so much for making time in your very busy schedule right now. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mike. It's uh, it's great to be here and talk about this important topic. Yeah, and I'm really excited. I think you have so many insights. I mean, this is a very hot topic right now. Um, so we'll get into uh, some of the details here. But let me set up um, the conversation. On December 9th, the European Parliament's Special Committee on Beating Cancer. I think we'll refer to it as BECA all the time today, but it's the European Parliament's Special Committee on Beating Cancer adopted its final proposals on how to strengthen the European Union's role in the fight against cancer. Among these proposals, two paragraphs uh, in the Baker report focused specifically on alcohol's role um, in actually driving cancer morbidity and mortality in the European Union. The report spotlights different aspects of alcohol policy measures, ranging from introducing health warnings on alcoholic beverages, recognizing that there is no safe uh, level of alcohol consumption and advocating for an alcohol, um, a ban of alcohol sports sponsorships. And now this uh, so strengthening Europe in the fight against cancer report will be um, discussed at the plenary of the European Parliament for a final vote, I think next week. So I want to start off by asking you, how does this Baker report relate to the European Commission's beating cancer plan? Are those two different things? 
How are they connected? How can I understand this? Yes, thank you, Mike. Uh, and it's a great question because it's uh, it's very really easy to confuse with each other as well. Uh, so many ways this special uh, committee on uh, beating cancer was set up uh, by the European Parliament while the Commission was working on their cancer plan. In many ways, this is this the Parliament also want to work on uh, cancer prevention and uh, beating cancer uh, alongside with the Commission. Uh, so this kind of focus on cancer was a big priority from Ursula von der Leyen uh, when she started in 2019. And the, the European Commission beating cancer plan was kind of the result of that work. Uh, so as a response to this, uh, the parliament also started their work in this special committee. Uh, they, they first made some inputs to the, to the commission on what they thought was important for the beating cancer plan. But that was not that much. I think it was supposed to be more inputs. Uh, so instead, they kind of shifted their focus a lot uh, to this report instead, uh, which is pretty much the only outcome uh, when it comes to actual documents uh, from this committee, uh, who has been active from 2020 until the end of the 2021. So uh, this is kind of how they relate to each other. So in many ways, you could say that the Bika report is kind of the European Parliament's opinion uh, on uh, on cancer and can uh, and beating cancer from uh, in Europe. And also in that sense, kind of a response. They had added some things that the Commission maybe didn't mention and maybe removed some things that the Commission did mention. Uh, so in many ways, kind of a response. Uh, and in that sense, the report in itself doesn't really relate to any specific policy, but it's a very important document in kind of showing where the parliament, uh, what the parliament stance is on this and what what their opinion could be going forward on uh, several of these different, uh, uh, different topics, for example, labeling. So when you say that it's important because it shows where the parliament stands on this very important EU priority of beating cancer, um, I think that means the parliament represents the people of the European Union, right? Which the European Commission does, does not directly do. But from your explanation, I take it, this is like a voluntary exercise or a voluntary initiative that the European Parliament is taking here to complement uh, what the commission is doing and to comment on, on what the commission is doing. Uh, yes, that's completely correct. And I agree with you. It's kind of the voice of the people uh, in this kind of larger work with beating cancer as a priority. Uh, and it's usually the commission usually take into account these are so-called own initiative reports. Uh, and the parliament does it um, uh, quite often. Uh, and it's often kind of voicing the opinion of the parliament that they want the commission to focus on. These own initiative reports are usually used when the parliament wants to kind of highlight a new topic, for example, uh, for the commission. But in this case, maybe it's uh, highlighting and underlining some important things they want to see uh, that the commission focuses more on uh, in their beating cancer plan and work ahead. And now... Maybe this is a very naive question, because I think you have explained this very well. But the EU's beating cancer plan um, is already published. There's even this implementation roadmap. So why does this European Parliament initiative and this report matter now? Aren't they too late? Like there is the EU's beating cancer plan already with all the priorities, the flagship initiatives. So what is the parliament doing here? I think I think that's I think that's a good point and I think that's also 
if I've uh, what well, my opinion is that I think that the the parliament wanted to get this work done sooner, so it could be more closely to the release of the uh, work more closely with the beating cancer plan release. Uh, but it still is important because it's it gives the commission an idea of what the parliament support is for different top, uh, solutions. So many of the things that are in the roadmap on alcohol, for example, are also mentioned in the parliament draft. And for example, a good example where actually the report was a bit watered down was when it comes to labeling, where the parliament wants to open up for digital labeling, which is uh, would be kind of undermine the the point of having a, a, nucle- a nutrition declaration, for example. Uh, and this, of course, gives the, the, the commission an idea that maybe we have to adjust our proposal before it goes to parliament. So in many ways, this is the kind of the, how they relate to each other. It's pretty much the parliament telling them, well, this is what we think. And uh, it could also be kind of a roadmap for the, for the commission when they have to go to the parliament in the future with policy. Now I see. So there are elements in the beating cancer plan, um, like uh, raising the minimum uh, tax uh, on alcohol, what you mentioned, Emil, the health warning uh, label and, and other elements that the commission still actually has to develop concretely how the policy looks like. And to do that, they then need the European Parliament to approve it. And so this report shows what is possible, so to say. The report outlines the political will and possibilities when it comes to the parliament. Yeah, in many ways, I think that's a really good way of describing it. I think, uh, for example, the parliament calling for raising uh, raising alcohol taxes is a good example because then it maybe gives the commission the freedom to realize, well, this is something we, we briefly mentioned in our beating cancer plan and it seems to have uh, the support of the parliament uh, and then it will record, encourage the commission to kind of pursue that route if they see that more uh, institutions are interested in it. Uh, So I think this is much how the dialogue can go and it's uh, a lot of the public dialogue. And I think this conversation really helps also uh, more people to understand what's going on because I think many people care for uh, cancer prevention and control. Uh, An increasing number of EU citizens cares for actually a much better response to alcohol harm uh, in our region. And to understand what the European Union, the Parliament, the Commission are doing, I think, helps them to get involved there. And that brings me then to my next question for you guys. What is happening now at the um, European Parliament with the vote uh, that is coming up? So we have seen there is the report, uh, as I said, it came out in the beginning of December and now who is doing what in the parliament in relation to this report. Can you explain that, please? Should I go? or You can start and I'll add. Okay. Uh, so what happens after the report was uh, adopted uh, is that it then it goes to the plenary to be uh, adopted by the by full plenary. So right now you could say that the report is the voice of that uh, committee uh, who did a lot of compromises and uh, a lot of discussions. That's usually in the parliament is where kind of all the work usually is done. And then it goes to the plenary to kind of become the, the voice of the f- entire parliament. Uh, so that's kind of where the report is now. So it's between these two stages, so to say. So the committee has agreed upon this uh, report. Uh, and now it's the parliament's, uh, the entire parliament's turn to kind of adopt it. And then it can, of course, do changes. Uh, look, you can suggest changes just as we do in the committee. 
but it's also harder than to uh, to sh do changes since it uh, requires a lot of people to a lot of uh, a lot of the MEPs to accept that. Exactly, and if I can add to that, in terms of the work we've done all throughout the fall, we've focused specifically on the. Um, members of parliament in the Bika committee, and now it opens up to everyone, right? So we're talking a lot, a lot, a lot of people who are going to have to um, establish a position in this question. So that's really where also uh, lobbying efforts from our part come in, in order to inform um, parliamentarians on this issue, uh, since some of them, you know, might not even be aware fully to what extent um, cancer and alcohol is related, for example. And since you have already touched upon this, you have, I mean, this is a long lasting process. Emil mentioned that uh, the parliament was probably a little bit late or uh, had the ambition to be a little bit more um, aligned with the European Commission's timeline. Um, but you have followed in detail the whole process uh, now through uh, the fall What are the key issues uh, that you see now uh, in the plenary, as you said, Runa, with more uh, members of parliament uh, taking part in the discussion? What are the key issues um, that, that you are talking about, that people ask you about, that you respond to? Yeah, so in general, there has been uh, a general a big question regarding alcohol and, uh, and alcohol-related cancer. And uh, much of the discussion has been that a lot of the MEPs uh, do not favor any kind of rating on, or in general, are very skeptical towards preventive measures uh, to reducing cancer. Because uh, it, uh, it's, it, it's, I can retake this one. Because <laughs> uh, it uh, involves a lot of topics that uh, many of the MEPs are kind of uncomfortable uh, talking about, such as tobacco and alcohol, which is probably the two most uh, clear ones. But also, for example, pollution has also been quite a uh, discussed topic. When it comes to alcohol, there's been a lot of discussion, mainly from the wine-producing countries who had a lot of MEPs that have a very strong connection to the wine industry, who has been very uh, hesitant uh, throughout both in the fall in the committee, Uh, to kind of adopt any changes that would recognize uh, the kind of causal relationship alcohol and cancer has. Uh, and this was a lot of discussion in the fall, um, but the compromise agreement, while not perfect, still uh, showed a, a clear recognition of the WHO uh, uh, recognition that there's no safe level of alcohol consumption and also had a strong uh, wording on, for example, health warnings uh, and the importance of developing that, which is also aligned with what the European Commission said in their cancer plan. So one key issue that you are facing is that some members of parliament don't want to accept the evidence that shows that alcohol causes cancer, that there is the link between alcohol and cancer. Yes, and we have seen a lot of lobbying efforts, especially after the committee was uh, report was adopted. The wine mm -hmm. industry has been very active on uh, on in the lobbying stage and has been very trying to discredit and uh, misrepresent uh, WHO studies and trying to point out uh, Uh, that they are not uh, uh, that they should not be listened to, uh, which is of course uh, 
uh, were, of course, the wrong, uh, very wrong, and are usually referring to their own kind of produced studies uh, from the wine industry itself. Uh, usually, lifting, uh, talking about, uh, uh, wanting to focus on the individual, uh, individual drinking rather than focusing on population-wide solutions, uh, which is, of course, a very common tactic from the alcohol industry. So there's nothing new in that sense. But what is quite striking about this policy process is just how active they have been in reaching out with this kind of uh, uh, this thinking. And we have gotten reports from the parliament that many of the MEPs who are not directly involved in this issue has kind of taken, uh, been kind of confused by the, uh, because the industry has been so active in trying to discredit science uh, that they have been unsure on what is correct or not. And this is, of course, very troubling for a report that is supposed to strengthen public health and support evidence-based solutions on beating cancer. Yeah, in that sense, it's kind of in a loop, right? Because the whole report is to strengthen uh, not just parliamentarians, but the entire, every citizen of Europe between the connection, for example, between alcohol and cancer. This is not very known, especially Emil and I are from Sweden, and in Sweden particularly, this is not very known among the public. Um, and evidently, this is also not known among some of the parliamentarians. And here, the industry is really working on discrediting this link. So it's it's really like a a loop of you want to get this information out, but still within the parliament, we can see that uh, there's being efforts to undermine this exact evidence that they're trying to put out to the citizens of Europe or the European Union. What are some of the other issues? So the first one, I think you mentioned already too, if I follow what you're explaining. So um, one is uh, discrediting the science that shows a connection between alcohol consumption and cancer uh, mortality and morbidity. The second one Emil talked about is uh, shifting the blame for alcohol harm to the individual consumer and away from the alcohol products. Um, let's stay with this a little bit. How does this uh, translate into writing or into talking points? Or Because as you explained, this is about amending this report. Um, so what can you see there? How are they actually do this? How are they actually doing this uh, concretely? Uh, so I think it's a great example uh, of this is when you can, when the amendments was now recently published. Uh, so the it was a current kind of uh, writing in the adopted report that said there's no uh, they recognized this study from the WHO saying that there's no safe level of alcohol consumption, and the amendment would kind of change this to the safest level uh, of alcohol consumption is none. And for many, I think this sounds like the same kind of uh, kind of same wording, but it's very a very strategic decision uh, to make this very small change. Since it would still, if you say the safest level, that also means there are other safe levels, and this is what they want to achieve with this kind of wording. Uh, so it's very similar how you talk about harmful, for example. Uh, it's the same kind of thinking, but it's just a new way of phrasing it. So I think this is probably the most clear example of how they're trying to change it. Another one is on health warnings, where they say there should be, uh, I think the original draft or something along, there should be labels uh, with health warnings uh, on the health effects. And the change would be something like, there should be labels about responsible and moderate drinking, which is also very 
classic alcohol industry tactic. But these are the kind of uh, example in text that we could see, uh, which is also it's also a third one when it comes to alcohol sponsorship. We could cover a bit, going to a bit more later as well. But there is also a clear rewriting there that you said it should only be a ban on alcohol sponsorship when it comes to uh, events that are mainly attended by youths and uh, children. And uh, this is a very, also a very well-chosen kind of formulation because they know that this won't work in practice. Uh, there are very few events that are uh, have that have a majority of children due as the target, and it's very unclear what a targeted event is, for example. Yeah. And it should be noted that these changes in words uh, might sound very slight, right? There's maybe almost no difference for someone who's not working actively with the subject. But when this happens throughout the amendments on several different pages, that's when you really see the watering down of amendments of policies, suggestions, or, you know, etc. And that's also a, a tactic of the industry to do it slightly discreetly, but in several different areas of the amendment. I think this is an important point. And If we broaden the conversation for a moment a little bit, you guys know that at the World Health Organization there is a process to develop a global alcohol action plan. Um, and uh, that discussion took place at the WHO Executive Board just two weeks ago. So in a way, we see two parallel processes where there is an initiative to actually improve the response to alcohol harm on global level and on the European Union level. And the things that you have summarized now, I think it's really great that you have this kind of overview over the amendments that are being tabled. What you are summarizing, what the wine industry is saying in the European Union context is exactly the same what the alcohol industry has been saying in the global context. So they are really fighting um, for keeping this concept of harmful use of alcohol. Um, they are really attacking any suggestion um, for health warning labeling on alcohol. And you both have um, mentioned this. And I also think this example of that they really don't want to say there is no safe level because that is very clear. There is no safe level of alcohol consumption when it comes to cancer prevention. But like Emil was saying, to say the safest level is zero when it comes to cancer, that means something else. So there are other levels, so it's it's more confusing. Um, and I think then we can already trace what Runa was talking about. Now you are engaging with members of parliament that don't really know what is the case, even though certain things are should be actually very clear because the evidence is so, so strong. Yeah, I think a very common saying is the devil is in the details, right? And I think this is a perfect example of it, that this detail, this small change, makes a very significant uh, difference when you read it, and it means something completely different. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a, a great summary, Mike. I think this example that you had of one amendment to change health warning labels into labeling that is about moderate and responsible drinking, that is actually drastic that's completely different yeah. and and i think it goes together with so the industry especially the wine industry here as you have said they want to push the myth about responsible consumption they want to keep the this flawed concept of harmful use of alcohol alive can you explain what it is that they are doing here and why this is so important for 
specifically the wine industry? Yeah, so I can start. So uh, the wine uh, industry could be worth noting has a very strong lobby presence historically in the European Union, uh, which has made that they have a lot of exemptions when it comes to labeling uh, and not just health warnings, but they have an exemption when it comes to labeling uh, nutritional values, for example, and also uh, a content uh, uh, contents in on on their labelings. So uh, already there, they have a lot of influence when it comes to this. So this is a, something they've been working and lobbying for for a long, long time, and have been quite successful at kind of avoiding uh, different measures or different restrictions. Uh, and they are very it's it's very important for the wine industry. Uh, to kind of separate themselves from the other two beverages types and point out that they are a healthy choice, uh, which is something they are, uh, it's a narrative they are very often pushing. It's often combined with the so-called Mediterranean diet, which is a very common uh, use of the, they're usually talking about wine in a Mediterranean diet. Uh, it's, uh, it's a healthy kind of choice. And this is, uh, and they usually refer to that alcohol, uh, dangerous or harmful alcohol consumption, as they use the word, uh, is only when it's in combination with other, for example, you smoke, for example, if you eat unhealthy, and it's alcohol in itself is not the issue. Uh, and the Mediterranean diet is very a way for them to kind of use this thinking. Uh, and uh, the Mediterranean diet is also quite effective in the Europeans where because it's kind of placed to a lot of cultural uh, food and beverages types that are exist in Europe. And they use this kind of cultural argument a lot as well. And also often align themselves uh, with other parts of the Mediterranean diet that there are, uh, for example, food stuff that are... Uh, that are harmful and cancerogenic. A good example is red meat, uh, which had a very similar kind of writing as the wine industry had uh, when, the, when the report was discussed last year. Yes, and also to add to that, it's, you know, they go hand in hand in terms of the labeling, but also the no safe levels of alcohol, because when using the wording only, you know, harmful drinking, it, it doesn't make sense because we have the data that shows that every amount of alcohol is harmful. Um, so they really go hand in hand, these both uh, changes in the, in the amendment. I think this is a super helpful explanation um, in the bigger picture that the wine industry has, an, has a more exceptional status in the European Union when it comes to regulation. I come to think of a situation in Germany last November when the German government As they are framing it, they modernized the alcohol tax in Germany. They did a, a reform. And what it means is they lowered the wine tax and they unlocked or they made available more subsidies for wine marketing. So it's not a public health oriented alcohol tax that the German government did here. And I think it, it underlines what you explained, Emil, for the entire European Union that uh, in, in Germany, the wine industry has, I mean, it's even difficult for me to say because I think it's not like the beer industry is better regulated but still the wine industry has even more of an exceptional status there so I think that's very good to to understand and I can say that from uh, a rather new perspective I've worked with this report specifically for the past six months but before that I wasn't involved in alcohol politics in this way and as an outsider If you would compare the wine industry, spirits industry, and beer industry, 
you wouldn't necessarily guess that the wine industry has this much negative influence because there is right this image of um, this cultural aspect of wine and its health and yada yada all this that when you start working with this you realize how much power they have especially looking at you know France Italy Portugal Spain in terms of these amendments and we've followed it closely for the past six months and seen specific amendments uh, and how it relates back to specific industries and sectors. I think that could also be worth noting that a lot of uh, we have some a lot of MEPs that are direct supporters of the wine industry, uh, but there's also a lot of uh, MEPs that have maybe have a health background or want to do uh, work for cancer prevention, but they have a lot of national pressure uh, from the wine industry, but also from national authorities to st- kind of stand up for the wine industry in the in Europe, and this is also quite an, an important issue to note that it's uh, it's kind of. Uh, the wine industry can kind of lobby from very different directions in this as well. And we talked with MEPs that had this kind of issue as well. Yeah, I think um, Runa's point that maybe from the outset, there is still a different perception of the, maybe we don't even perceive the wine industry as a wine industry. And I think we, we can talk a little bit more about this because you guys shared with me lots of articles in preparation for this podcast conversation. So you are not only engaging with the policy making with the members of parliament now, but you're also monitoring the the discourse in the media. And I read those things and and I was struck by the fact that the wine industry, they are a big industry, they are promoting the small farmers, right? And I think that is what you are alluding to, Runa, that we still think, okay, the beer industry, that's a massive transnational industry, the liquor industry, we understand these are global players. But for wine, we think of a little vineyard and, and a little farmer doing their best, I don't know, to produce 10 bottles of wine per month or something like that. So mm-hmm. we don't have this understanding that this is also an industrial sized production, also a transnational uh, industry with massive global players that are uh, putting this pressure, as Emil said, on the European uh, Commission and the members of Parliament and even back at home. Yeah, and I think it's also you can actually see this in one of the amendments. It's not one of the main, uh, the most focused on one, but it's one amendment that's trying to kind of mention because the wine industry really wants to strengthen this picture, as I said, that they they're not they don't have this picture of being an industry, but by being more of a kind of cultural small scale player, uh, which is very important for them. And you can notice that they're also trying to push that narrative. They had one amendment that was saying something that. We, uh, that uh, I don't remember exactly what it said, but it was something along the lines of, uh, while also recognizing the importance of wine uh, wine production uh, in rural areas or to keeping rural areas alive in the European Union or something like that, which very much goes in line with what you just said, Mike. And it's it's a very common uh, use kind of narrative from the wine industry uh, uh, on the European level. Yeah, and if we should see something positive in the negative here, and the negative, of course, is the alcohol industry's involvement in this process. It's huge amount of lobbying efforts. From the positive aspect, that means that we are the public health you know, defenders are doing something right. Like we have uh, data to support our arguments. Most people are behind us as well. 
the industry are scared because they know that these amendments are very good for public health. And that's why they're putting so much effort to um, discredit uh, very reliable science and data. Uh, and while that, of course, in itself is negative, it's also positive because it, we know that we're doing the right thing here. And they are starting to realize that we have, um, not us specifically, but we as civil society organizations, public health experts, uh, we're on the right track. I think this is a good point. I think it goes back to what we said earlier that uh, now I understand really how big the threat, the perceived threat by the wine industry for their exceptional status is and, and why they are so aggressive. I think we can talk a little bit about the things that they are actually saying because I think they're also overreaching. But I think that this is a good point that you are making that the science is so strong um, the popular support for health promotion in general. And I think really addressing cancer in particular is also so strong that this, I think, makes uh, the alcohol industry in general and the wine industry even more scared. And, and Runa, you already mentioned it very briefly. I want to go back to this. Where do you see is the, the big opposition uh, coming from for public health oriented action on uh, alcohol harm in this cancer prevention conversation, which are there specific countries, specific members of parliament? What is it that you see? Um, I'm sorry, could you repeat that question for me? <laughs> that question is, where is the opposition coming from? Uh, I mean, the opposition, I think we mentioned that, but we can see it specifically in, in the wine producing countries a lot. And we talk about it in... in Uh, our coordinating meetings, we have coordinating meetings with a, a bunch of public health organizations beyond simply alcohol policy related. It's tobacco, it's liver disease, it's cancer in general. And uh, we're all seeing the same thing, that we see huge amounts of efforts from uh, Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, uh, which also happen to be wine producing countries, right? Um, yeah, I mean, do you have something to add? Yeah, I, I, I follow up on your point. I, I agree with that. But it, it's it's interesting. You can see a kind of double split here. So you have a lot of the wine producing countries uh, having a lot of MEPs supporting the kind of wine industry messages. And then you also have a bit of a right and left shift as well in the parliament here, uh, which is kind of uh, expected and kind of normal when it comes to this uh, uh, when it comes in general to prevention, uh, preventive measures like alcohol and tobacco, that you have uh, S&D, Greens, and uh, the left group is being usually very supportive to kind of these kind of preventive measures, for example, tax increases or otherwise, other kind of population-wide solutions, while EPP uh, and ECR rather focus on uh, more kind of uh, appealing to industry side arguments and uh, individual kind of uh, individual responsibility in these issues, or rather not talk about them at all, uh, which was quite clear from the EPP uh, from the outset when they started discussing these topics that they, well, I think EPP sees a bit of a, a loss that a lot of focus on this kind of Becca committee uh, ended up being on prevention. Uh, they were much more keen on talking about other parts of the report uh, since that's more where they Uh, have less controversial topics from their side. And EPP, this is interesting that you bring it up. Uh, that's the European People's Party. So it's the party association of the more 
center-right, the more conservative uh, parties in Europe. And uh, as you mentioned in the very beginning, Emil, Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, belongs to that party family. So I can understand that this is not so easy for them to, you know, uh, undermine the European Union's work on this uh, important piece of legislation. As you said, beating cancer is a priority for Ursula von der Leyen. So that's very interesting that they would have liked to focus on other things. Uh, they don't prefer this prevention health promotion focus because traditionally they don't want it, but they also cannot really undermine, I think, Ursula von der Leyen's work here. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that the EPP is also quite split. So there are many of the members from the BICA committee who was part of this compromise uh, are still trying to uphold it uh, for the vote, uh, which is, of course, very positive. And the rapporteur, who is from the Renew group, which is the, the liberal group or the center group, uh, who is, was responsible for the original draft, she's also very keen on uh, having the report adopted as it is. So it's a lot of kind of internal splits in the parliament, uh, in the groups as well, which is worth noting. But as you say, Mike, I think it's a good point. And I think uh, I think what the EPP expected was probably to talk more, more about less controversial topics, such as uh, access to care, for example, or uh, screening, which is also very important parts of the report. Uh, but they are also much more kind of consensus. Uh, there are no one in the parliament that are really against those kind of measures, uh, which is, of course, very good as well. Uh, but And for that reason, a lot of the kind of political discussion has shifted to the prevention kind of pillar, uh, where the EPP are less keen on doing actions. Yeah, of the new amendments proposed, uh, I mean, a majority of them concern alcohol and tobacco specifically. Wow. Yeah, I think it's pretty much all of them except two or three, which are not really that serious ones. Yeah, this is a remarkable fact because, of course, cancer prevention and control is a much broader topic than the risk factors. Of course, we think and, and we know that alcohol is a big risk factor for cancer. But I am struck by this fact that then there is so much mobilization uh, to alter the text when it comes to alcohol and tobacco. Yeah, and I think it shows just how controversial these topics is on the European level, uh, that there are still a very strong divide between doing public health actions to reduce alcohol uh, consumption and alcohol-related uh, uh, alcohol-related cancers, as well as reducing tobacco consumption or tobacco use, uh, contra the people who still want to kind of strengthen these industries. I think this is a conflict that will probably go on for a, quite a while. Uh, and I think you can also discuss it kind of who has the home turf in one sense. Very often when these kind of topics on alcohol is discussed uh, from a kind of agricultural stance, it's very hard to getting these kind of public health arguments or kind of public health perspectives on it. But when it comes from the kind of health side, it's uh, uh, it's much more, much more leveled kind of uh, conflict. And it's much more often that the public health uh, aspects are more listened to and more taken into account. And it also shows the importance of where in the kind of parliament is these issues discussed. Mm -hmm. When it's come from the health side or like normally they call it, they call Envy Committee, which is doing public health, uh, we get much more of these kind of uh, reports that have a really good impact when it comes to, in this case, uh, cancer, beating cancer. But we're talking about agricultural side and talking about, uh, for example, the, the farming subsidies. Uh, the alcohol industry has very strong contacts and the, the public health aspect is often barely even mentioned. 
And it can also be added that, you know, the Beaker report is huge. Alcohol is actually just quite a, a small part of the whole report if you take a step back and look at it. Only two amendments. But the fact that all except just a few of the new amendments are focused on alcohol and tobacco also shows um, how one political these issues are, but also the corporate interests in these issues. Um, there's a reason why alcohol and tobacco are being lobbied this much. And it's because some people care more about public health interests and some people care more about vested and corporate interests. And I wanted to ask, I think this is a good point that you both are making, um, how much also the framing matters that we enter with into a policy conversation. So um, I listened to you and I heard that the alcohol industry or the MEPs that do the work for the alcohol industry, that they are even casting doubt about World Health Organization science. I think in a public health conversation, that should be even the minimum standard to say, well, we have the global leader in uh, um, understanding health harms, health risks. That's the World Health Organization. What is it that they show? As you know, for cancer, there is even the International Agency for Cancer Research, the IARC, uh, they do this work on a daily basis, so we know very well. But in this political process, even the science is being questioned and the, a specific framing is being advanced um, to the detriment of the public health conversation. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about what it is that you see beyond the changes to the text, beyond the amendments that, that you have explained, What is it in the discourse? And I was struck by things like in these articles, um, the wine industry claiming alcohol will almost be illegal um, or this will be destroying the sector, the wine sector. I think this is a very dramatic portrayal of uh, public health policy. What other things do you see in, in the discourse, in the framing exercise here? Yeah, I think that's a good spot, Mike. And I think... Uh... Uh, this kind of hyperbolic uh, sentences are often used by the wine industry when discussing these issues. I think another one we see a lot is that you try to play a lot on the cultural aspects of wine even more, that you talk about this is a cultural product that are really important for, in many cases, our country or uh, the European region, uh, depending on the context. Uh, and very often kind of saying, well, we I, I remember one MEP in one of the meetings said, well, we have consumed these products for uh, millennia. Of course, they can't be dangerous or something like that. Uh, so it's a lot of these kind of uh, cultural uh, aspects as well that they're trying to kind of adhere to as well. Yes, exactly. And, and what you say, Mike, that we, you know, that this is kind of a, a scrutiny or a, um, let's see, let me know that. Push my uh, Yeah, okay. Uh, so what we're also seeing here from specifically the wine industry is how this kind of report is an attack against the industry of uh, uh, how it's, you know, how is this going to affect them and that, you know, they're targeted in a way. And this is going to be, as you say, detrimental to the entire sector and, and all of this. But reality, what is happening is uh, not an attack on the industry. We're lifting up the public health aspect. We're lifting up the people who have the right to know uh, that what they are consuming is carcinogenic and that this is supported by, you know, global leading health experts. 
but they're reframing this issue as as it's an attack against the industry. Uh, and it's quite interesting also considering that the wine industry, you know, as we mentioned earlier, they don't have to put nutritional values or health warnings on their products. And this is the only uh, alcohol uh, beverages are the only products that don't have to do this, uh, which is quite crazy when you think about it. So we're attacking something that they already have an advantage of, if that makes sense. But essentially what we're doing is what the entire public health uh, community is doing is lifting up the consumers and their right. And the industry frames that as attacking the industry in and of itself. Yeah, and just a final point on that. I think another kind of framing I've, I've seen is that they're comparing themselves to tobacco, which is interesting, and call it like kind of using, as you say, they're using these dramatic arguments. And one of those is that, oh, now wine is going to be classified as tobacco. It's going to be the same as tobacco, which is interesting because in many ways, well, they are very similar in how they affect cancer, right? They're both carcinogenic. They're both uh, uh, like tobacco is the biggest uh, uh, preventive measure, like the biggest... Uh, but, uh, okay, I want to come forward. <laughs> uh, but the uh, risk factor. Risk factor. Risk factor. Yes. So uh, tobacco is the biggest risk factor for for cancer, and alcohol is the next biggest factor. So in many ways, these are very similar. But it's interesting how they kind of use the tobacco narrative to kind of scare people that probably consumes wine, which a lot of the MEPs do, uh, and uh, kind of use that to their advantage. Yeah, so I, I can see how it all plays into one bigger narrative. So the cultural uh, role that the industry tries to defend, um, the increasing recognition uh, driven by science of uh, the cancer risk associated with all alcoholic products, including wine, um, uh, that uh, I think threatens profit margins. And uh, then I think the case of tobacco, where we can clearly see how much uh, policy measures actually help in promoting health. So I think, again, in the public health uh, perspective, uh, tobacco control is a best practice. How much you can do with such a, a detrimental uh, product through increasing taxes, uh, banning advertising, putting warning labels on the products. But if you have a warning label on a product, then of course you also you inform about the risk that is associated with consumption. But you also send the message that well, maybe it's not this glorified uh, cultural product that we have been uh, conditioned to think about it like that. So I can see how all these three pillars of the the framing uh, actually fit together here. And why this is such a scary scenario now for especially the wine industry? Yes, I think that's a, a I think that's a really great point. I think it's a great summary of kind of uh, how they use this narrative to spin it to their advantage. Uh, yeah, and I, I think it's a good example is looking how tobacco used to be viewed uh, precede uh, like some decades ago. It's it's very similar to alcohol, uh, tobacco. You had the Marlboro Man. You had all this kind of. Uh, things that were seen as tobacco was a part of finer culture and uh, like a cigarette was a natural part of people's lives. It's a very similar kind of narrative that the tobacco industry had lost. And I think the alcohol industry is looking at this and the wine industry is scared of uh, facing the same kind of destiny. So I have two more questions for you. 
Um, maybe you have to go back to advocacy work, informing more members <laughs> of parliament um, ahead of the discussion then next week. Um, but I wanted to ask, Runa mentioned it a little bit. So what I have heard is you work with coordinating civil society and of course you work with supporting uh, members of parliament in their decision-making in their fact-finding process, so to say. But can you just uh, tell me a little bit, how are you working uh, with this uh, process? What are the important things that, that you are doing right now until the discussion takes place or the decision is being made? Yeah, I can start a little there. Um, so for us, it's very important to organize and coordinate with other organizations because the industry has huge amounts of money, a lot, a lot of people working for them. Um, and they can lobby like there was no tomorrow. But the public health organizations like ourselves were very few. And without coordinating efforts, it's very difficult. Um, so we meet with um, latest this morning at 9 a.m. We started the day having a coordinating meeting with about 14 different organizations. Um, giving each other updates, information, and also how each organization proceeds. So we cover as much topics, as much grounds as possible in these efforts. Um, and uh, we are the uh, Swedish organization. So we contact mainly our Swedish members of parliament. Uh, and then we have, you know, organizations who are from Spain and they do the same, Ireland, they do the same, etc. So we cover all the different countries in terms of lobbying and advocacy. Um, together with these organizations, we also do press releases. We've written one latest today that's going to go out today as well. You have to work very quickly <laughs> with these types of works. Um, and also joint letters, because uh, we're stronger together on these issues. And these joint letters are sent out to every member of parliament. Um, so it's crucial for us to really see the bigger picture and work together on these efforts. And you have to do it under quite uh, some time pressure mm. uh, because we have to essentially for, for this specific vote, we have to get most of it done before uh, Monday. Uh, and after that, it's going to be gif difficult to do anything. Do you want to add something? Amy? I think you covered it uh, really well. Uh, Runa, I think it's important to show that the public health si uh, side and the civil society side is very clear on one voice here that the, uh, We are like we are happy with the report as it is. It's not perfect. It definitely could definitely be improved, but it has the key message uh, about alcohol and cancer and how it affects the cancer burden in Europe, and uh, that is uh, that undermining it and kind of watering it down by these industry arguments uh, would be a very symbolic loss and showing the kind of corporate capture that can appear and can happen in the European uh, European politics. Uh, so I think it's it has a lot of symbolic significance uh, for this vote. And I think the one voice is very important there. And my final question then is, we have, I mean, you helped me understand this uh, wine industry exceptionalism in the situation where I think there is alcohol industry exceptionalism um, overall. And, and so I think that was very important for me to figure out Knowing what you know um, through all the discussions with the members of parliament who have to decide this then next week, where do you think, where do you think or where do you hope this is going 
Um, will it, as you said now, Emil, will it still be a strong public health approach to um, beating cancer, including alcohol policy there? Or will this be really significantly watered down with some of the things that we discussed today? W what do you anticipate? Well, I'm I'm still cautiously optimistic. I would say uh, it's hard to know exactly where this, how the support is looking in the parliament because we know we have signed, for example, the uh, the amendments, but we don't know that much more. But we understood that there are there's still some MEPs trying to really advocate for the the committee report, saying that this kind of compromise was already done, that it shouldn't have to compromise one more, one more time, and I think. I still think they kind of have the upper hand, kind of showing that, well, we did this agreement, uh, it's good, and it's kind of accepted by, uh, uh, it's kind of endorsed as well by the WHO, they're behind the message of the report. Uh, and I, I think they still kind of uh, have the, the current agenda, at least. Then it's, of course, hard to know, but I'm still optimistic that it, it will, uh, will go through. The question is, maybe one or two amendments will go through that will water it down, but hopefully it won't, and hopefully it will stand kind of strong and uh, be a very important milestone in uh, in the work on alcohol and cancer in, in Europe. Yeah, and I agree with everything Emil said. And, uh, you know, if against all odds, any members of parliament <laughs> are listening to this podcast, which I hope they are, because they will learn quite, quite a lot about the upcoming vote, uh, probably more than some of them even know, is that at the end of the day, the members of the European parliament represent the people. And most people of the European Union, they have rights, first of all, right to know what they are consuming, uh, which is right now not happening. And they also have the right to have a healthy life. And if the European Parliament members uh, think that their constituencies, the people who voted for them, have this right to know, have right to information and have right to a healthy life, they should vote uh, not for Uh, the corporate interests proposals. Um, so if anyone is listening, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Runa. And I think, Emil, this is a great point, actually, also to go back to, there is actually already a compromise here that has been found that was actually also well-crafted. It's, uh, I think, a difficult process, as you uh, described earlier. And I am actually very encouraged to hear that, that you explain that there is actually also strong support from MEPs for this compromise uh, solution so that, that already exists. I think that also underlines, I mean, there are certain practices and to, to my mind, it even feels like maybe the wine industry was a little bit late with all this uh, lobbying frenzy, like they actually could have mobilized even better what you are seeing now for this Becker report, but this exists now, that, that is practice in the parliament. And I'm very encouraged to hear that members of parliament are also defending this kind of procedure and, and this kind of commitment to what has already been decided by the experts that have really looked into detail in, in this issue. Yeah, and I agree. And I think this also shows, because uh, I think the industry were trying to lobby. I don't. I also think they don't kind of they didn't realize what the report would end up with. But they were trying to lobby during the fall as well with amendments and everything. You could hear the wine industry talking about it. But I think mm -hmm. it also shows once again what we talked about, kind of the in the framing going in. A lot of the MEPs who were in the Becker committee, what they did 
for the first year where they had a lot of hearings, they were talking with a lot of experts. And I think that has some effect as well, that mm. many of these MVPs that might have not kind of considered uh, any public health uh, writings on alcohol kind of realized the, the significant, like uh, realized just how uh, alcohol affects the cancer burden. Uh, so I think that also has an effect that you shouldn't probably undermine. And I think that's also why the industry put a lot of lobbying effort now that when they know they have a lot of MEPs in the plenary that do not know uh, the topic that well, that maybe don't have time to read the report, for example. Uh, it's much easier to convey these kind of uh, MEPs as well. But I think this kind of, or once again, the framing of talking about it from a health from the beginning has really helped uh, getting a good compromise that is still public health focused in its core. I think this is a great final comment, Emil. And uh, like uh, Runa said, let's hope that this uh, public health approach and I think the public interest in cancer prevention and control and the public health approach to it, that this prevails in the end. It's a little bit under attack, as we have discussed, but uh, there is uh, cautious hope, as you have said, that this overall framing uh, prevails. And with this, Thank you very much for this discussion. As I said in the beginning, I'm very grateful that you take time out of this very busy schedule. Like you said, there is lots of time pressure. Um, thanks for explaining this so well. And like Runa said, now the challenge is to actually get this podcast out, out as fast <laughs> as possible so that maybe it helps somebody in their decision-making process. Definitely. Thank you so much for having us, Mike. Yes, thank you very much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to Emil, Runa and IOGT NTO for taking the time to talk in depth about the alcohol industry opposition to improving health and well-being in the EU by aggressively opposing cancer prevention. This podcast episode is part of Movendi International's work to raise awareness about the unethical practices of the alcohol industry. In the show notes, we share resources regarding the topics we addressed in the conversation, especially regarding the facts mentioned and stories about EU's beating cancer plan. Your feedback, questions and suggestions for future topics and guests are most welcome. Please get in touch at mike.dunbier at movendi.ngo. You can also reach me on Twitter and find my contact details in the show notes. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pino, Taraka Ranchigoda and Kristina Sperkova. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay well and safe and talk to you soon.